Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Shelley. Hi, I'm Shelley, and I am a compulsive overeater. Like in the round. Um, well, I am so grateful to be here, and I really thought there'd be me, maybe the secretary, and a, a microphone because of the Region Two. Um, convention going on and it's just beautiful to be here and and actually as I'm looking around the room there's a couple of familiar faces but I don't know most of you and um, so what a beautiful opportunity to connect and welcome the people that identify themselves as new to this program um, you've walked into a gold mine of you know somebody that once said that I'll never forget you know it's a million dollar program that we get a nickel at a time and um, Sometimes it feels like more, and sometimes it feels like where's my nickel. But um, it works. So, um, just to give you a little background, hopefully, so you can identify with me, um, I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 1978. Um, I was young. <laughs> and um, my abstinence date is October 1st, 1980. So I have 32 years of abstinence. And when I walked into my first meeting, my one of my big concerns was that I wasn't fat enough. Um, I do represent uh, a compulsive overeater, the part of this disease for, for many of us, where large amounts of weight were not necessarily a manifestation of this illness. There are many manifestations of this illness, as I've come to learn through the years. And weight is one of them, but it certainly isn't the only. And it isn't even necessary to be carrying extra weight to be suffering from this disease, ironically. I've learned this, too. So when I came in, I had about 15, 17 pounds to lose by my calculations. And um, I came in at a time when OA does not had a, did not have its own literature, where we had only Alcoholics Anonymous literature. And it was the day of, if, you're, if you've been around a while, you've heard the gray sheet. Um, there was an orange sheet. There was a moderate mealers. There was, there was a lot of different ways to try to figure out what abstinence was. And I'm going to fast forward very fast through that so that I can share what I wish I had heard at my first meeting. And that is the doctor's opinion in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was where I discovered what this is about on a physical level. Why this program is akin to alcoholic, for alcoholics as it is for a compulsive eater. And why it works verbatim. So the way that I learned to study and the way that I take my sponsees through the doctor's opinion today is the... It is, a, it is necessary for me to identify my alcoholic foods. That's what I call it, my alcoholic foods, the foods that will set up a craving that will create an obsession for more. 
once I identify that, then I read that chapter. And I do not substitute the word food for alcohol. I plug in my individual alcoholic foods, and that chapter takes on a life of its own. Like many of you, you may hear people say, you know, it's so easy for the alcoholic. They just, you know, put the plug in the jug, but we have to take the food out. And I hear this all the time, and I, it's just not my experience. Alcoholics drink all kinds of beverages, just not alcohol. And there are all kinds of food that I can eat and enjoy and be serene around, uh, just not my alcoholic foods. And for me, that is sugar and that is flour. And I'm cross-addicted, so I also refrain from uh, marijuana. Now, the Alcoholics Anonymous doctor's opinion says to me that once I identify my alcoholic foods, the only suggestion that they have to make is entire abstinence. And I must refrain from this substance. Now it's not food in my mind anymore. It's a substance in all of its forms. So that means even if I'm not sensitive to alcohol, alcohol has sugar. And once I identified myself as having an issue with sugar, it was not safe for me to eat, to drink alcohol. That's how I work it today. What I mean to say by that is, I'm out of ideas. I don't know how to do it. I didn't know how to do it when I walked in here. That book teaches me and I don't argue with it what I do is I embrace it and I fumble through the first few chapters when I'm reading it with a new sponsee because the language is odd but at the end of the day there are such incredible gems in there that teach me how to live my life and have a life really it talks about being catapulted into a fourth dimension right where is that promised and what the heck is that and all I can say is, I can't say I've been catapulted in the fourth dimension because I don't even know what that means. But I can tell you that I've been catapulted from where I was to where I stand. And it's quite a different woman and quite a different story. My heart is so full, to, so full today. And when I was using... I didn't know that I was cutting my heart off. I didn't know what I was doing. I was doing the best I could. I was innocent. I didn't even know I had a disease. But when I came in here, and I came in here at 23, and I wandered into a morning meeting, and I, re I took two things away from that meeting. One was laughter. There was a lot of laughter in that room, and I walked in so morose. And the steps, and particularly the word God. And for me, I didn't have a problem with that word. Um, it was like, it was as though somebody had whispered me the name of a long-lost best friend that I had completely forgotten about when I saw that. And I'm not a religious person. Um... I'm not a traditionally organized religious person. That's just not my path. But what this program gave me, that very first meeting, was hope, was connection. I can remember I used to have fantasies of, you know, 
remember this term? I'm really dating myself. Rap groups where people sat around and just hung out and, you know, very bohemian and, you know, let it all hang out and talked about stuff from their heart. That was as close as anything I'd come to finding years later when I came into an OA meeting. It was like it was amazing. People would go around the room. People would share. They would, like, divulge incredible things. The timer would go off. People would clap, and they'd go off to the next person. And so much happened for me in that little experience. It was like the most dramatic thing. Maybe somebody revealed in that moment, you know, like the most personal thing, and they're sobbing and they're crying. Three minutes, clap, move on. And that's been my experience to bring me to today. I want to spend as much time because it's all a story, isn't it? Isn't it really all a story? All that drama, my little red wagon full of all my stuff, that's what I've been working on for 32 years. My weight, does it fluctuate? Yes, I'm older now. And, you know, I'm at a stage, and it's just hit me in this last year, where weight's redistributed, and I can't eat the same, and I'm learning what that looks like, and getting to the gym, and because I want to stay healthy. But basically, I've maintained within a range of five pounds for well over 20 years. And so why am I here? What am I still doing here? What I'm doing here is I'm continuing to to allow my heart and my mind to be touched by the truth. And I hear it from you, and I read it in my literature, and I see it in my writing, and I hear it in my prayers, and I feel it in my meditation. And everything that this program gives me fills me up with what I've always been looking for, the the true food. It is my true food. When you guys share from your heart, it fills me up. When I go to a retreat or a seminar or whatever else I've expanded into my world, it fills me up. But make no mistake, as an addict, this is my fundamental core program. Whatever I've added that has enlarged my spiritual life, I am an addict through and through. And these 12 steps and being in a situation, be it a meeting or on the phone with somebody Um, where I can be of service to another compulsive eater and where I can hear the message of recovery is (coughs) crucial, God bless you, to my life. So it's not just about how spiritual and how out there I can get. I have to stay very grounded in that I am an addict and that this program, a day at a time, if I do the work, I have a daily reprieve. A daily reprieve from what? For a long time that meant to me that I wouldn't binge. I'd have a daily reprieve that meant I get another day of abstinence. What it means to me today is a daily reprieve. I have another day of sanity. I have another possibility for peace. I have another opportunity for serenity. There's another possibility to be of service. There's another possibility to remember I'm being breathed and to be with it. There's another opportunity to see that there's nothing for me to do. There's no experience for me to create. There's nothing for me to do but to sit and to receive the blessings of this program. Now, that sounds odd to me even um, because I do a lot of work. So what does my day look like? Um, What my day looks like is 
My first phone call from a sponsee comes in at 7.45, and my last one comes in at 9. They're 15-minute intervals. So from 7.45 until 9.15 in the morning these days, I'm on the phone with a sponsee. In different literature with each one, some are reading me writing. Um, sometimes somebody has a pressing problem. But what an amazing gift and strength for my own program to start my day this way. But I started even sooner because I journal with my higher power. And then I have my own, my own prayers, my own meditation that I do for myself. Those women that pick up the phone and call me give me the greatest gift and strengthen my program unlike anything else. You know, and the big book does talk about this, that when all else fails, work with another. And this has really, really been my experience. Even when it's not failing, work with another. It's amazing sense of purpose. And we, we really can touch others in ways that nobody else can because we understand we know the suffering we know the insanity we know what it feels like I'm assuming anyway I'm in good company here that we know what it feels like to be talking to somebody and have an entire inner dialogue going on about something else it might not be about food it might be about how could you be saying that you know you're making such this inner talk this crazy inner talk that seems to never stop I've learned how to stop it I've learned how to stop it by the grace of this program it's called pencil paper it's like there's a thought that's driving me crazy grab it slam it put it on paper stops it in that moment at least for them it stops it what do I do with it once it's on paper well what's the thought um you're an outcast before I had the thought, I'm an outcast, I'm starting to feel shy, withdrawn, maybe I'm around other people, I'm quiet, I'm closed up, I'm self-conscious. If I think back, what was I thinking before I felt that way? Oh, I was thinking I'm an outcast. I wasn't feeling that way before I had the thought. Without exception, I have learned through the clarity of absence and sobriety that every feeling I have is preceded by a thought. And the big book gives us due time about our thinking. There's quite a bit in there about our thinking. That's where I need to spend my time today. If I think I have a problem, it starts with my thought. And thoughts are random. They just come. And I don't have to worry about the thousands of thoughts that come because most of them don't bother me at all. But the ones that bother me, I have to treat. And the way that I treat them is by writing. And I ask myself, is this true? I am an outcast. Is this true? And I, and I go through and I look at it because I sit with myself and I get to know myself intimately that's another gift that this program's given me is that through prayer through meditation by refraining from what it is that I want to do to take the edge off and I have a list you know it's food it's shopping it's you know, even in abstinence, we all find our ways to, you know, to figure that out. You know, it's still technical, technically abstinent, but, you know, <laughs> it's like we're masters at this, right? 
And and for for me today, what what I am finding is that what I want to be a master at is what is it that I can do and need to do and want to do today to support my own serenity, my own sanity, my own peace of mind. Because what I want today, I want a long life. I do. But what I want even more than a long life is I want quality of life. And when I am tortured by my thoughts, it's not possible. And when I am tortured by thoughts with nothing to do, no substance to take, no way to take myself out of it, no way to numb it, to quiet it, with a substance, I am left with a pen and a paper. And I say that over a telephone. I mean, you know, we have tools here. There's outreach calls. Wonderful. I make them. I receive them. But at the end of the day, I am alone with me. And I have learned something, that outreach calls, as powerful as they are, it's for me, it's like a pressure cooker. It's like I'll call somebody and it's like letting just the sort of top layer of steam come off of whatever's going on. And then I feel better. And then maybe I don't take any more action because I feel better. And then somebody once said to me, do you want recovery or do you want relief? And I really had to sit with that. Because the answer was going to, you know, however I answered it, my actions would need to follow it. And if I wanted recovery, then that meant I had to be all in. And that's, that brings me to the next thing I really want to share with you guys that I've really discovered that makes it so much easier for me. And that is I opt in or I opt out. I have a disease. I'm talking about the big book. We have our own literature, but I am, I am talking about the big book. I have a disease. The big book has a prescription. It tells me what to do. It suggests what not to do. I either opt in or I opt out. If I opt in, then I follow it. If I'm not all in, it's a battle. It's a battle, and I believe that that's what it means when it says, you know, we, we must refrain from the debating society. I'm either in or not, and you know, this is the crazy thing. It tells me half measures availed us nothing. Where does that make sense? I mean, like anywhere, right? If you put in 50%, you get 50%. It doesn't make sense. What do you mean half measures availed me nothing? But I really think I'm beginning to understand what that means because I may be getting something, but it's not the program of recovery. That's not what I'm getting. I'm getting something, but not that. And, you know, I haven't stuck around this long, and I don't do what I do because I don't want the program of recovery. That is what I want. So that is what I need to do. I can't do it perfectly. It's impossible. I, you know, I want to talk about, just circle back for a minute to the defin- defining the physical abstinence and how important that is for me as a compulsive eater and how important it is for me when I'm working with a compulsive eater. Because if it's not black and white, absolutely clear for me, then I'm not grounded and tethered safely. My abstinence feels doesn't feel like deprivation. It doesn't feel like sacrifice. It feels like I'm tethered and I'm grounded and I'm safe. And the way that I work it is I don't believe in slips because the way that I work it 
is that my abstinence is like there's a brick wall. Anything outside of my abstinence I see is a steel brick wall that I can't possibly slip through. I'd have to take a hammer and a sledgehammer and work very hard to get out of it. So I define it in a way, and here it is for me. It's three meals a day, two optional snacks, no sugar, no white flour, and rarely any flour, but no white flour, and no marijuana, no alcohol. So it's very, very simple. It's very, very simple. Why are the optional snacks in there? They're in there because I wanted to have an abstinence that I knew I would, there really would never have to be a reason to break. I could be in Australia and have been three times. I could be sick. I could be wherever. And there's that flexibility of having those optional snacks. And it's not to get more food. It's to be able to live a life of dignity and know that I'm not on a diet and one day at a time, please God, I never will be again. So that's how simple it is. What do I do? I know. know, So now, when I defined my abstinence, it was pretty scary because I knew I couldn't do it. I could write that down. No sugar, no flour, no alcohol, no marijuana, three times a day, two optional stacks. But how am I going to do it? But what I've learned is this, that I must define the abstinence that I need to recover, not the one I think I can do. Because the one that I need will lead me to the first step, and nothing else will. As long as I'm still managing and controlling, and I'm speaking from experience, as long as I'm still managing and controlling and coming up with a way of eating and a way of dealing with the food that I can handle, it, I never, I never go to step one. Not sincerely, not completely. It just never leads me there because why would it? But when I finally defined what I knew I couldn't do, there was nowhere else to go. Checkmate. And that's the way I need to treat this disease. Checkmate. With my thoughts, with my actions, with my behavior, with my abstinence. Checkmate. This is not. This is not a disease that isn't dangerous because it's food. Because we're talking about sanity. Again, I've opted in. So when the big book says that it leads me to insanity or death, untreated, I believe it wholeheartedly. I do. Because I know what it feels like to absolutely be in a very dark place in a a thin body. So I must work with my thoughts and I must allow my higher power to work through me and in me and for me and help me. I have no other chance. I have no other choice. I love the acronym for trust. I just remembered it the other day. Try using step three and I'm really sitting in step three I'm going through my steps again and I'm in step three and I'm really sitting with this what is my concept of a higher power today not what was it 32 years ago or 32 minutes ago what is it and is it something that I really will make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of. And if it's not, that's okay. 
Because, again, the clear, simple instructions are, you, you come up with your own definition. You come up with your, you, me, come up with my own definition. This is the beauty of this program, is that wherever I am, I can keep expanding my understanding, my definition, my story about what God is. Because I have no idea. I have no idea what God is. I just know in any given moment what I need, that energy, and I call God a million different names, energy, universe, people calls it the great reality, which I love, because reality rules. I can't argue with reality. So that brings me to the next part of where I am in my program. You know, it used to be page 449, page 417. It talks about acceptance. It says, and acceptance is the answer to all our problems today. I love that page. You know, did you ever notice that all is in italics? It doesn't say some of our problems, just the ones that are driving you crazy, the ones you don't want to let go of. It says simply, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Okay, simple enough, right? But how? Once again, how? How do I accept what is unfathomable to me, what's not part of my plan, what scares the heck out of me, which, what is the last thing I wanted, which, which is a situation I'm in for years where I didn't want it in the first place. I mean, in 32 years of abstinence, I've gone through a lot of different things in my life. I've gone through a marriage and a divorce and a bankruptcy, and infertility, and birth, and a remarriage, and, and oh my God, I mean, the most recent thing is they think I might have glaucoma. You know, this is just this week. And, you know, so it's like, how can I live with the possibility of a diagnosis of glaucoma and love it? How can I live with that possibility and embrace it and not have it impact my serenity? Well, it's a process. You know, the first step is to show up. The next step is to have tests. The next step is to listen to not only the doctors but to my own inner self. The next step is to make intelligent decisions. The next step is to be thankful that I can see today. The next step is to know that it could be so much worse, whatever it is, and on and on and on. Because here's what I know for sure. I'm not working this hard because I don't know what life will give me. And I don't believe in a punishing God. I believe life gives us what it gives us and then God gives us the strength to walk through it. If we, if we want it. My God is so polite, I have to ask. It just stays out of my way completely. In fact, I have to pray and say, please, if I forget to invite you, please be there. So polite. So incredibly kind. So incredibly kind. But I forget. I forget to ask. So my goal is not just acceptance, but it's to be completely joyful no matter what is going on in my life. Because who the heck do I? I don't know. I can worry about going blind and walk out of here and get hit by a truck. I have no idea what's in store for me. None. And coming from that I don't know place, I never thought would bring me the peace that it does. 
I thought knowing would. I thought figuring out would. I've been trying to figure myself out of a trap like this disease. Chuck C. says this is a trap we can't spring. I can't figure myself out of, my, out of anything. I can just sit with it. I can be with it. And I look for how it is serving me. How the situation I'm in at any given moment is even more beautiful than I could imagine. And I always find it. I'm telling you that from my heart. I've never not found it to be true. How could losing my sight be a good thing if I live in a friendly universe? And I came up with a list. I grew up with a grandfather that was blind. I saw the life he lived. He thrived. And I don't think I'm going to lose my sight. This is a slow, slow thing if it's even happening. And there's treatment. So it's not about the drama. But I went there because that's how scared I was. Because that's where my thoughts took me. That's where my brain took me. I had myself blind and broke because I wouldn't be able to afford the treatment and I wouldn't be able to see. That's what this thing will do each and every time. But when I take that thought, I'm afraid I'm going to go blind, I'm afraid I'm going to go broke, and I grab it and I put it on paper and I look at that. Is that true? Well, I have no way of knowing for number one. I have money today. I see it in my wallet. There's change in my drawer. The money in the bank actually doesn't give me the same piece as the change in my drawer because I can see it. I purposely keep change in my jar to help me with my fear of financial insecurity. I can never, ever say I don't have money. It's just not true. It's just not true. None of it is. None of what this head tells me is true. Not any of it. It lies to me every chance it has. So, I am going to, there's another few minutes. I'm just going to take a couple minutes to say one thing about thoughts. I hear and hear, and it worked for me until it didn't. Thank your head for sharing. Tell the committee to shut up. Right? All this stuff. I mean, who wouldn't? It drives us nuts. But I've learned a better, gentler way to treat myself and my thoughts. And that is to embrace them. That is to thank them. The ones that are causing me trouble are there to to teach me. They're there to help me. I've learned this by putting them on paper. They're gifts. They're there to share what I need to see. And so that is another level of peace that I found in this program. I do have a head that has a committee. But I'm learning to embrace it and to allow it to be yet one more guide on my journey for me. And that's working for me so much better than the harshness because I've been harsh with me all my life. And I don't want to do that to me anymore. And when I stop being harsh with me, I can be kind to you. And when I'm kind to you, I'm connected. It's family. Where do you find? I can't find a separation. Except when I'm believing a thought that's not true. So when I look around the room, all I see is our mirrors. I mean, I don't know what any of you are thinking, but I do know that you're still sitting here listening to me. You're with me. 
you're supporting me just by sitting in your chair. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. And again, if this is your first meeting and you didn't hear what you needed from me, please know there are so many meetings. Avail yourself of them and that this program does work and to keep coming back. Thank you. Okay, so questions. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, part of it is, oh, the question, I'll repeat the question. Um, what do I do with the writing? So when I have a thought and I write it down and, and I ask myself, is it true, what do I do? I do have a particular format and way that I write that out. I was taught it elsewhere, so I won't share it from here. Um, but what I will say about that is that that's, I practice my tool of writing. That's an important tool in here, and I, I do it many different ways. That's one of the ways. Um, and I'd be happy to share that with you. Yes, the question is, do I weigh and measure, and um, this fellow is uh, in the process of figuring out their food plan. Um, I track. I do find. Uh, I don't track calories. Um, I do track my consumption. I do commit my food in an email to my sponsor with the portions included. Um, 90% of the time, um, if I'm going to a restaurant or something, it's a little more difficult, but I, I do whenever I can. Um, so I do believe that, I mean, I want to maintain a healthy body weight, and so portion um, tracking is very important to me. But I don't feel like I'm dieting when I do it. It's just a way for me to know that I'm consuming the proper amount for my body or not you know or not so yes I do and I commit it and I and I love that too it, I feel tethered and safe yeah um well <laughs> I um the first thing I do is I if somebody asks me to sponsor them I ask them to write um something I call uh, I call uh Pre-step. It says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. So I ask them to write, and we'll see what comes up for them. Assuming we get through that, they see they want it, they're willing, they're ready, and we decide to work together, the first course of action for me is to help them define their abstinence. Not my abstinence, to define their abstinence. And the way that we discover that is that they write, they list what they feel their alcoholic or binge foods are. And we get together, it's a meeting, usually a couple of hours. And that list sometimes is very long that gets condensed. We look for the common ingredients. We, we may or may not study the doctor's opinion right then, but I share my experience about then how I plug in those alcoholic foods to the doctor's opinion. And if we don't do it together, then they do it right on it. And we get together and we diagram in absence. I have them draw a big circle on a page. Anything outside that circle, you need a chisel and a hammer to get out of. You've broken your absence. Anything inside of it is safe. I just got my thank you for sharing timing, and um, thank you once again so much.